Is self-esteem just confidence in one's ability and worth? For women, what are the potential influencing factors in the areas of self-esteem that may be overlooked? What happens, especially among high-achieving women, where society deems as outwardly successful, yet there are other areas in which there are challenges in their life, such as with romantic relationships? Is it even fair to evaluate one's self-esteem globally? In recognizing the sexism and objectification that many women face, how do we support women empowerment by re-examining the self-views and recreating a relationship with oneself that is loving and authentic? Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Sun. Our guest today is Dr. Leva. She is a licensed psychologist and part of a group practice at the Anxiety Treatment Center of Austin. Dr. Leva specializes in the treatment of anxiety, OCD, specific phobias, body-focused repetitive behavior, and low self-esteem. In addition to treating anxiety, Dr. Leva has a special interest in serving high-performing women who may notice a discrepancy between how they are successful in their careers, yet still report a pattern of entering into unhealthy relationships in which they are treated poorly, possibly indicating low self-esteem. Dr. Leva has published in the area of self-esteem and self-concepts as part of her dissertation, examining the effects of self-esteem on romantic relationships. Trained in the most rigorous CBT techniques in the clinical psychology department of University of Texas at Austin, Dr. Leva views the therapeutic process as a way in which she joins forces with her clients to find the inner strength and overcome their fears and challenges. Before joining the group practice, Dr. Leva worked in integrated care treatments within primary care behavioral health settings at the Veterans Healthcare System and did consultative work at multiple hospital systems. As an Asian American psychologist, Dr. Leva will be discussing empowering women in therapy by encouraging them to examine their self views. Dr. Leva, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can you walk us through? your origin story and share some memorable experiences that you had that led to you doing this work. Sure. So growing up as an Asian American, I was told uh, repeatedly by my parents that the most important thing when you go to college is make sure you study something that's going to earn a solid uh, financial income when you graduate. And so my, my father went so far as to tell me that I had to pick either engineering or medicine or else he was not going to pay for my college tuition. <laughs> uh, and at the time, I believed that he would follow through with this plan. And uh, I decided to go with engineering because I didn't want to be a medical doctor. And uh, I was very good at physics and calculus. So engineering seemed to be the right choice for me. And I got my degree in mechanical engineering from Stanford University. And I, I got a job in biotech right after graduating. And I worked for five years uh, developing lab automation for devices that replicated DNA and RNA. 
And it was interesting work, but I realized after uh, four or five years of this that I didn't really see myself doing this the rest of my life. It didn't seem to tap into the other half of my brain that was very important to me, which was to feel like I was connecting with people and also being creative and making an individual contribution to society. You know, as an engineer, you often feel like you're just kind of a cog in a in a machine, whereas I wanted to make a more unique contribution. And what I found was that at work, I much preferred talking to people about what was going on in their lives and specifically their relationships. And I was you know, really trying to help people get through difficult situations in their relationships. And one day I said, gosh, you know, it sure be great if I could get paid to do this. <laughs> And I had never considered the field of psychology because it was never discussed in my household. Psychology as a field was not very widely regarded as a, as a science among my parents or their peers, or I would endeavor to say the Asian community in general. I know that, you know, amongst my parents and their peers, you don't really talk about difficult emotion very much. That's not very common to talk about difficult emotion. And so the field of psychology doesn't seem to make sense to them. And so my parents never really valued psychology or regarded it highly. And when I told them that I was going to leave engineering to go into psychology, my mother was very upset with me. She didn't talk to me for two years. Mm -hmm. That's how Asians deal with emotion. <laughs> they don't talk oh, about wow. it. <laughs> And then my father, he supported me, but only because he heard that I was going to get a doctorate. And he said, oh, doctor, that sounds good. I will support that. So he supported me. And then when I got my first publication in American Psychologist, then my mother said, I want three copies to show my coworkers. So, so I had to find my own way to psychology. It wasn't something that my parents knew much about, and it was never really encouraged from them or from, I would say, their culture. And for a bit, it, it did feel like I was going against the grain. And now that I'm successful and practicing and happy, both my parents are quite supportive. But I have to say that it wasn't a field that was made familiar to me through my parents uh, or, you know, or through their culture. It's yeah. definitely kind of a Western profession. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Western. And as you're sharing that history, I would imagine that you basically had to carve out your own space and explore and discover everything on your own because there wasn't the knowledge that oh psychology was even a field you could practice i didn't even take a psychology course at stanford i didn't even know really that it existed as a field that i could consider so when i decided to leave engineering what i did was i bought the black and yellow psychology for dummies book you know the, oh. the series oh okay <laughs> i bought I bought the Psychology for Dummies book and read it and, you know, to see, well, let me see if this is even what I think it is, you know, and sure enough, it, it did say that careers in psychology can consist of either academic research track or clinical practice track. And I said, okay, okay, this does sound like maybe something that I want to pursue, but I had to really feel it out myself. And then I enrolled in some intro to psych, intro to social psych, intro to personality, into biological psych that summer. 
at Berkeley just to kind of see if it was something that I wanted to do. And after I found that I really enjoyed the social psychology and the clinical psychology classes, then I contacted a professor out here at UT and asked him if I could do some research with him after reading his book on self-esteem and self-verification theory. I took a, a particular interest in his self-verification theory because this theory states that people seek feedback that confirms their self-views that they already hold. And for people who have high self-esteem, that's not a very interesting finding because people with high self-esteem will surround themselves with people who give them positive feedback. But what was compelling about Dr. Swan's work on self-verification was that it said, likewise, people who have low self-esteem will actively surround themselves with people who give them negative feedback about themselves. And I had always wondered about that in the context of romantic relationships because I had noticed in college at Stanford that there were a lot of really high achieving women that you might think were high in self-esteem but found themselves repeatedly getting into very unhealthy relationships in which they were treated very poorly. And it was clear to everyone who was observing these relationships that they shouldn't stay in these relationships. And yet somehow these women would not only stay in these relationships longer than they should, but then if they managed to exit, they would simply enter another one that uh, was of a similar unhealthy pattern. And, you know, the question arose, why would these women who clearly have high self-esteem stay in these relationships in which they're treated so poorly? Now, did that question emerge after you got into the doctoral program or were you already primed and thinking about this when you were at Stanford? So this was before I even considered psychology as a profession. Just as an engineer at Stanford, I noticed a lot of my peers were getting into these horrible relationships, yet they were fellow engineers with me. And many of them were Asian. Some were white, though. It wasn't a purely Asian phenomenon. But, you know, it was very apparent that these were the women who were in the top 1% of, you know, American students that they were at Stanford. And yet they were choosing to enter these very, you know, unhealthy and in some cases abusive relationships. Oh. So this was far before I even found Dr. Swan's work, which was what made it sort of strike me like a bolt of lightning when I found his book, which was, you know, on self-verification theory. I said, my goodness, maybe this is answering the question I've been asking myself, just kind of pondering for years. And I'd really like to uh, explore more how his self-verification theory applies to intimate relationships. So I wrote to Dr. Swan and I said, I'm really interested in, in uh, testing some hypotheses about self-verification and romantic relationships. And he was very happy to, to let me give it a go. I ended up designing a series of experiments exploring this for my dissertation that I completed for my doctoral work. The study you recruited women, mm -hmm. was there a distinction of why you selected women instead of men? Yeah, so... I chose women because the pattern of abuse from male to female is different than from female to male. Actually, when I surveyed both males and females on the internet as a pre-screening, I found that both psychological and physical abuse is 
equally as occurs equally as frequently from male to female as it does female to male, meaning that women perpetrate physical and psychological aggression as frequently as men do. However, what we do know is that uh, men in general being larger than women in the human species are capable of inflicting more damage from physical aggression. And so I chose to focus only on male to female aggression for this study. And so I, I, for the subsequent studies, I, well, for the second and third studies, I hold only females who were in male-female relationships about their attitudes toward abuse and a psychological and physical aggression. But there is a, a wealth of research that suggests that women are equally aggressive toward men, but there's an argument that it may be in self-defense. And so it's a little bit hard to tease out with what's out there right now. In your work exploring the self-view, one thing that I remember in our conversations is you made a distinction of the, I think is a competence, is a career competence self-view versus a, a relational self-view. Can you describe some of the, the areas there? Yeah. So another aspect of Dr. Swan's research that attracted me to his lab was that he is one of the only self-esteem researchers that splits self-esteem into two facets. One is self-competence, which is what we, I think, traditionally refer to as self-esteem in terms of like, I feel capable, I am uh, good at things, I, I tend to make things happen when I set out to do them, that kind of thing. But the other facet of self-esteem that Dr. Swan works with is self-liking. And that facet is measured with items that would load on things like, I'm worthwhile, I am lovable, people like me. So self-liking and self-competence correlate at 0.6, which is significant, but not all, it's not one, right? And so there is a good group of people out there who fall into a quadrant where they might be high in self-liking and low in self-competence or high in self-competence and low in self-liking. And it's that particular quadrant of folks that I was interested in studying, the people who were high in self-competence, so high achievers, but low in self-liking. And I believed that if I looked at that category of people, it would explain a lot of the behavior that I saw at Stanford, where these were clearly high achievers, but obviously didn't like themselves enough to select into healthier relationships. So I called this group of folks the paradoxicals because mm. they were high on one facet of self-esteem, but quite low on the other. And it's hard to get a sample size large enough of these folks because since self-liking and self-competence correlate at 0.6, most of the folks fall into the major quadrant that they have high self-esteem in general or low self-esteem in general. But for my dissertation study, I pre-screened everybody on self-liking and self-competence and selected only those who were high in self-competence and low in self-liking as uh, the experimental group. When I showed them aggressive behavior and uh, had them interact with very dismissive um, male partner, confederate in, uh, partner in the experiment and asked them if they wanted to spend time with him afterwards or give him their number, these folks who were higher in these people, it was general, in general, folks who were low in self-liking 
were more interested in spending time with this dismissive Confederate after the experiment than those who were in high in self-liking. In terms of the paradoxicals, we did find some effects with regard to viewing aggressive stimuli on videos and being able to identify what behaviors were abusive and which were not. So, but in general, the paradoxicals behaved consistently with those with low self-liking as opposed to high self-liking. So. Mm-hmm. so these paradoxicals, when you, based on your work right now, your clinical work, are you noticing of the women who are coming in working with you for low self-esteem, are you noticing they're more in the paradoxical quadrant or more of the... I have had several patients come into clinic that are very high achieving and low in self-liking. And those are definitely the most interesting to work with because they recognize that there is a discrepancy going on here. They recognize that they feel so capable in one arena in their life and yet seem just stymied in another area that is so important to them. So uh, so that is just really exciting for me when people of that dynamic come in. I have also had a couple that are both low self-liking and low self-competence. The work that we do between the two are not that different. Like I said, paradoxicals behave a lot like pure self, low self-esteems that are, are low in both self-liking and self-competence in terms of how they will select intimate partners and how they will select friends. And and so the the boundary setting work that we do and exploring healthy relationship patterns and stuff that we do is the same with both. But paradoxicals have a particular quality in that because they are high achievers, it's a little bit easier to tap into that confidence and say, hey, let's let's see how we can leverage that to issues of self-worth because I know you can do this in the area of self-confidence. Hmm. So some tips for our listeners who are noticing that they are working with successful women, mm-hmm. right? That's their clientele. And they're noticing that the story doesn't quite add up where they're doing really well at work, but things at home aren't really up to snuff and there are some issues at home for folks who are listening maybe they're also teasing out oh maybe i need to explore more about this difference here between your view of your competence versus your view of yourself what have been some strategies that you've implemented that you like to share with our listeners sure well you know i think that a lot of the time, this attitude that, you know, well, I can get feedback about how competent I am from school, from work. We regularly get concrete feedback from school in terms of grades and work in terms of raises and promotions to tell us how competent we are. And so it's fairly easy to build up our view of self-competence just by being a good student and being conscientious. But the feedback that we get at home in terms of our own self-worth is going to vary widely depending on our family of origin. And if we have particularly critical family of origin, whether it be, you know, in the Asian community or, you know, non-Asian community, I've had both 
kinds, uh, both demographics of patients come in with this presenting problem, sharing the background of having ver had very critical parents. The messaging that they're getting at home is not you are worthwhile because you're you. Very often the, the messaging is you're worthwhile if you can get good grades or you're worthwhile if you can contribute to the family, you're worthwhile if you can, you know, get a job and, and help with the bills, right, or help with chores or whatever. It's what you can do competence-wise that makes you worthwhile in these households. And so the idea that you're worthwhile just for being you is kind of a foreign idea. So what we do as an intervention to help people realize that they can be worthwhile just for being themselves is what I, I call dating yourself, right? These people who come in are very often other oriented or in a sort of a collectivist mentality that their worth is only worth what they can do for others. And so we do a lot of work just getting them to think about what they can do for themselves by thinking about taking themselves on dates that they would otherwise plan for their partner or, you know, because when I, I'll ask them, oh, you know, would you ever take yourself out to this nice restaurant downtown? And they say, oh, I would never go alone. I would, I would go on a date with someone. I would take my boyfriend there as like for his birthday for a special treat, but I would never, no, I would never waste that kind of money on myself. And, and I'll challenge and I say, why not? Why, why aren't you worth that fancy dinner for yourself? You know, and so a lot of times the homework will be, okay, you have to take yourself out to this really nice restaurant, table for one. I want you to, you know, get dressed up and look nice for yourself and see how that feels for you, not for somebody to look at you, you know. And if you're not ready to do that, how about let's just take yourself on a walk around the lake? Well, I walk around the lake with friends, but I never walk by myself. Well, take yourself, hey, and stop at the kayak rental and rent a kayak for yourself and just spend an hour out there by yourself. You know, these are things that people would not think twice about doing with somebody else or for somebody else. But when I say, why wouldn't you do it with yourself? Treat yourself as if you're planning this date for you. Then they get this perspective of, oh, yeah, I guess I should treat myself like uh, I'm worse that time. And so after they start dating themselves for a couple weeks or a few months, their perspective on what their worth is really does shift where they say, gosh, you know, I, I never would have, you know, booked this trip to Seattle just for myself. But I went and it was such an amazing trip because I didn't have to worry about what my friend wanted to do the whole yes, time. And I didn't yes. have to worry about where to eat because mm -hmm. I just went where I wanted to go. Yes. So it's a completely new perspective often for, for these folks who are, you know, grow up uh, living their lives around what they can do and be for others. Yeah. It's such an interesting point as you're talking about the cultural influence because, yeah, it makes sense from a collectivist perspective, you're doing something for the group, your identity is very much tied to the group. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I mean, even my own unlearning process, as you were talking about, going to a nice fancy dinner, I'm, you know, my heart is just raging, oh gosh, I can't fathom spending money, you know, for a fancy dinner for myself. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, because it's viewed as possibly wasteful. How could you do that? Selfish. Right. Self right. Selfish. Yeah. The view of the self, mm -hmm. the individual versus more of the, the group experience. Well, thank you very much for, for sharing about your work, these tips. So in your career as a woman of color, 
what were some challenges that you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share? Sure. So I noticed that in particular being a woman, and I can't say if this is because I'm a, a woman of color or not, because I haven't tried being a woman who is not of color, but I definitely feel that I've had some negative experiences both professionally and personally due to being a woman. For example, you know, when I was working at the VA, I was pregnant and uh, that's very visible to everybody. And so walking down the hall, I would get at least a dozen comments, uh, inappropriate comments from male veterans saying, oh, you're about to pop, you know, oh, you know, how far along are you? And, you know, and just having all this um, unnecessary attention on my body, uh, just as I was trying to make my way to my clinic office was was very uncomfortable to me. And, you know, it was clear to me this would not happen if I were a male. <laughs> and uh, I remember walking one patient to my office one day and he said, so how many months along are you, 45? And I said, <laughs> or he said 90 or some some kind of, you know, gestation period equivalent to that of a whale. And I said, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm 36 weeks along, actually. And he was like, oh, so you've got another 30 months to go? And <laughs> I don't know, he had no idea. And just kind of incessant comments about my body made me very uncomfortable. And also, Things that have happened to me professionally that I actually coach my patients on is recognizing that we are still women in a man's world, even though we claim to have come very far. And yes, we have come far, but we still have a long way to go. And I've been talked over and mansplained in meetings with people who think that they are very woke and advertise that they're very woke. But still, you know, there will be instances where one member of the meeting will ask for feedback. I will offer an idea. The other person will ignore my idea. And then another male will basically say the same thing that I did a few minutes ago. And he will get praise from the person who asked the question and say, uh, you know, and have him say, oh, that's a great idea, you know, and, um, and, and uh, I'll be sitting there thinking, I, I just said that exact same thing, you know. So that has happened to me many times. I've been you know, yelled at by other professionals where I don't think I would have been yelled at if I were male. Yelled at? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Ugh. So, and I think part of it is being female. Part of it is being diminutive. You know, I'm not a very tall person. I'm not, I'm not very big physically. And so I do think that that has had an impact on what people think they can get away with when they talk to me. So there's, there's a lot that I can't really overcome in terms of my physical appearance and the fact that I'm a female. And I've had to bring that into my work with a lot of patients who are struggling with similar forces in their own work environment. And I explain it to them that, you know, in interpersonal effectiveness, uh, the objective is not necessarily to be right, but to get what you need out of the interaction. And as a female, as a woman, and possibly as a woman of color, you do have the shorter end of the stick in almost any arrangement that's going to happen here in America. And you do have to play the game and you have to tell the person in power what they want to hear in order to get what you need out of the interaction. And sometimes that's not going to feel completely honest or like you're being a totally straight shooter, which I'm sure you value yourself on. But if you want to survive, you're gonna have to put on a smile 
and you're going to have to say the words that they want to hear. As a woman, that happens all too often, that we have to, we don't get to be as snarky as our male counterparts and get away with it. In fact, there's robust social psychological research that shows that they, um, they surveyed undergraduate students after an introductory psych course, and one section professor was male and the other section professor was female and they had them rate each professor on traits such as how knowledgeable was this professor how charismatic how interesting and how kind were they how agreeable were they right they rated them all on the big five personality traits whatever and how much would you want to take from this professor again how much would you recommend this this professor to another student and for the male professors the ones who were rated most knowledgeable, um, most interesting, were most likely to be recommended to other students, regardless of their agreeableness score. But for women professors, overwhelmingly, if they had low agreeable scores, they were less likely to be recommended to other students, no matter how knowledgeable they were perceived of the content and how interesting they made the content. So it showed that overwhelmingly, people pick nice women to work with, no matter what their other credentials are. Uh, whereas with men, they get a lot, away with a lot more, and they're chosen more according to their uh, achievements as opposed to if they're crotchety, oh, well, he knows what he's talking about. But the same won't be said for women. Ugh. There's a bit of a bitterness as you're describing the reality. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, you know, how much of this challenge... Uh, can be overcome and how much are we also getting in a trap by playing the game and it would be so nice to not have to play this game sure yeah yeah i mean the idea is to play the game and then get into a higher position of power <laughs> so that you can change the rules right um but it's slow work right yeah so yeah hmm. i'm wondering throughout just the podcast and conversations with other folks, particularly the uh, Asian Americans, do you get a sense that there is this subtle, as you mentioned, you know, you grew up in New York. Do you sense some sort of that feel that somehow you're a foreigner, you're being asked, hey, where are you from? Not from where are you from in the United States, but okay. no. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When I worked at the VA, I got a lot of where are you from questions. And I'd say, I'm from New York. And they'd say, no, where are you really from? And oh. I'd say, uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd say, and then I'd throw them a bone because I knew that what they're getting at, because I've gotten this question enough times. And I say, if you're asking for my ethnic background, my parents are from Taiwan. And they'll say, oh, Okay, I was in, and they'll say, I was asking because I served in Vietnam and I was wondering if you were Vietnamese, you know, and so it's not out of malice that they're asking. They're trying to find something that we have in common, but they can't tell the difference between Chinese and Vietnamese people, which is <laughs> <Just> fine, <laughs> you know. So, uh, so yeah, I certainly get that kind of question a lot. And I know that when I was in graduate school, there was a Korean American peer of mine. Our mailboxes were next to each other. We always had to sort out our mail and give it back to each other because we'd get mixed up for each other all the time because my name was Chang and her name was Chung. And oh. so, and a lot of times people would call us the other person's name when they saw us in the hall. So there's certainly that. But, you know, 
hard for me to say if that wouldn't have happened elsewhere to, you know, this is, this is the experience I had. And uh, again, I, I feel like I've been very blessed in terms of the opportunities that have been available to me academically. So. Yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Leva, how do we support you? Yeah, I think just getting the word out to women who may not realize that this is a more widespread issue going on than maybe just with them. I think it's very easy for a woman in this position to think that there's something broken about her that she just can't fix, but realizing that actually there's a whole group of women in the same boat who just didn't realize there's two different facets of self-esteem going on here and that even though they may have paid a lot of attention to the competence area of esteem, that they've overlooked the self-worth area because perhaps their culture indicated that it wasn't relevant or simply because their family of origin did. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges I encounter in working with this issue is that women resist doing for themselves because they worry that they will be selfish in doing so. And um, and they, they view that as disdainful. So getting them to understand that being an individualist and valuing your own worth in and of itself is not selfish. It is Western, but it's not selfish. And if they were continued to be raised in Asia and had to live in a collectivist culture, it wouldn't work out too well for them to adapt an individualist ideal. But the, as it stands, they're living in, in Austin, Texas, and it's not going to work out for them to be doormats to just do for others all the time. They, they need to figure out how to do for themselves and set boundaries and consider themselves worthwhile and worth their own time before they do for others. Otherwise, they end up becoming overextended and taken advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing this with us. And I hope for our listeners who are curious about this work can reach out to you and or if they have referrals or women who are struggling in this area and want to speak with a professional, they can reach out to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you liked this episode. Please subscribe and share. We'd love to hear from you. So send me a message on LinkedIn or email. The People of Color in Psychology is brought to you by the Multicultural Counseling Institute, and I'm your host, Jack Sutton.